Chapter 10, Part 1 of The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter 10, Tierra del Fuego, Part 1. Tierra del Fuego, First Arrival, Good Success Bay, An Account of the Fuegians on Board, Interview with the Savages, Scenery of the Forests, Cape Horn, Wigwam Cove, Miserable Conditions of the Savages, Famines, Cannibals, Matricide, Religious Feelings, Great Gale, Beagle Channel, Ponds and Bee Sound, Build Wigwams and Settle the Fuegians, Bifurcation of the Beagle Channel, Glaciers, Return to the Ship, Second Visit in the Ship to the Settlement, Equality of Condition amongst the Natives. December 17th 1832. Having now finished with Patagonia and the Falkland Islands, I will describe our first arrival in Tierra del Fuego. A little after noon we doubled Cape San Diego and entered the famous Strait of Le Maire. We kept close to the Fuegian shore, but the outline of the rugged, inhospitable Staten land was visible amidst the clouds. In the afternoon we anchored in the Bay of Good Success. While entering we were saluted in a manner becoming the inhabitants of this savage land. A group of Fuegians, partly concealed by the entangled forest, were perched on a wild point overhanging the sea, and as we passed by, they sprang up, and waving their tattered cloaks, sent forth a loud and sonorous shout. The savages followed the ship, and just before dark we saw their fire, and again heard their wild cry. The harbor consists of a fine piece of water, half surrounded by low, rounded mountains of clay slate, which are covered to the water's edge by one dense, gloomy forest. A single glance at the landscape was sufficient to show me how widely different it was from anything I had ever beheld. At night it blew a gale of wind, and heavy squalls from the mountains swept past us. It would have been a bad time out at sea, and we, as well as others, may call this Good Success Bay. In the morning the captain sent a party to communicate with the Fuegians. When we came within hail, one of four natives who were present advanced to receive us, and began to shout most vehemently, wishing to direct us where to land. When we were on shore the party looked rather alarmed, but continued talking and making gestures with great rapidity. It was without exception the most curious and interesting spectacle I ever beheld. I could not have believed how wide was the difference between savage and civilized man. It is greater than between a wild and domesticated animal, inasmuch as in man there is a greater power of improvement." The chief spokesman was old, and appeared to be the head of the family. The three others were powerful young men, about six feet high. The women and children had been sent away. These Fuegians are a very different race from the stunted, miserable wretches farther westward, and they seem closely allied to the famous Patagonians of the Strait of Magellan. <clears throat> Their only garment consists of a mantle made of guanoco skin, with the wool outside. This they wear just thrown over their shoulders, leaving their persons as often exposed as covered. Their skin is of a dirty, coppery-red color. The old man had a fillet of white feathers tied round his head, which partly confined his black, coarse, and entangled hair. His face was crossed by two broad, transverse bars. One, painted bright red, reached from ear to ear and included the upper lip. The other, white like chalk, extended above and parallel to the first, so that even his eyelids were thus colored. The other two men were ornamented by streaks of black powder made of charcoal. 
The party altogether closely resembled the devils which come on the stage in plays like Der Freischutz. Their very attitudes were abject, and the expression of their countenances distrustful, surprised, and startled. After we had presented them with some scarlet cloth, which they immediately tied round their necks, they became good friends. This was shown by the old man patting our breasts, and making a kind of chuckling noise, as people do when feeding chickens. I walked with the old man, and this demonstration of friendship was repeated several times. It was concluded by three hard slaps, which were given me on the breast and back at the same time. He then bared his bosom for me to return the compliment, which, being done, he seemed highly pleased. The language of these people, according to our notions, scarcely deserves to be called articulate. Captain Cook has compared it to a man clearing his throat, but certainly no European ever cleared his throat with so many hoarse, guttural, and clicking sounds. They are excellent mimics. As often as we coughed or yawned or made any odd motion, they immediately imitated us. Some of our party began to squint and look awry, but one of the young Fuegians, whose whole face was painted black excepting a white band across his eyes, succeeded in making far more hideous grimaces. They could repeat with perfect correctness each word in any sentence that we addressed them, and they remembered such words for some time. Yet we Europeans all know how difficult it is to distinguish apart the sounds in a foreign language. Which of us, for instance, could follow an American Indian through a sentence of more than three words? All savages appear to possess, to an uncommon degree, this power of mimicry. I was told, almost in the same words, of the same ludicrous habit among the Kafirs. The Australians, likewise, have long been notorious for being able to imitate and describe the gait of any man, so that he may be recognized. How can this faculty be explained? Is it a consequence of the more practiced habits of perception and keener senses common to all men in a savage state, as compared with those long civilized? When a song was struck up by our party, I thought the Fuegians would have fallen down with astonishment. With equal surprise they viewed our dancing, but one of the young men, when asked, had no objection to a little waltzing. Little accustomed to Europeans as they appeared to be, yet they knew and dreaded our firearms. Nothing would tempt them to take a gun in their hands. They begged for knives, calling them by the Spanish word, cuchilla. They explained also what they wanted, by acting as if they had a piece of blubber in their mouths, and then pretending to cut instead of tear it. I have not as yet noticed the Fuegians whom we had on board. During the former voyage of the Adventure and Beagle in 1826 to 1830, Captain Fitzroy seized on a party of natives as hostages for the loss of a boat which had been stolen to the great jeopardy of a party employed on the survey, and some of these natives, as well as a child whom he bought for a pearl button, he took with him to England, determining to educate them and instruct them in religion at his own expense. To settle these natives in their own country was one chief inducement to Captain Fitzroy to undertake our present voyage. And before the Admiralty had resolved to send out this expedition, Captain Fitzroy had generously chartered a vessel, and would himself have taken them back. The natives were accompanied by a missionary, R. Matthews, of whom and of the natives Captain Fitzroy has published a full and excellent account. Two men, one of whom died in England of the smallpox, a boy and a little girl, were originally taken, and we had now on board York Minster, Jemmy Button, whose name expresses his purchase money, and Fuegia Basket. York Minster was a full-grown, short, thick, powerful man. His disposition was reserved, taciturn, morose, and, when excited, violently passionate. His affections were very strong towards a few friends on board, his intellect good. 
Jemmy Button was a universal favorite, but likewise passionate. The expression of his face at once showed his nice disposition. He was merry and often laughed, and was remarkably sympathetic with anyone in pain. When the water was rough, I was often a little seasick, and he used to come to me and say in a plaintive voice, "'Poor, poor fellow!' But the notion, after his aquatic life, of a man being seasick was too ludicrous, and he was generally obliged to turn on one side to hide a smile or laugh, and then would repeat his, "'Poor, poor fellow!' He was of a patriotic disposition, and he liked to praise his own tribe and country, in which he truly said there were, quote, "'plenty of trees,' and he abused all of the other tribes. He stoutly declared that there was no devil in his land. Jemmy was short, thick, and fat, but vain of his personal appearance. He used always to wear gloves, his hair was neatly cut, and he was distressed if his well-polished shoes were dirtied. He was fond of admiring himself in a looking-glass, and a merry-faced little Indian boy from the Rio Negro, whom we had for some months on board, soon perceived this and used to mock him. Jemmy, who was always rather jealous of the attention paid to this little boy, did not at all like this, and used to say, with a rather contemptuous twist of his head, "'Too much skylark!' It seems yet wonderful to me, when I think over all his many good qualities, that he should have been of the same race, and doubtless partaken of the same character, with the miserable, degraded savages whom we first met here. Lastly, Fuegia Basket was a nice, modest, reserved young girl, with a rather pleasing but sometimes sullen expression, and very quick in learning anything, especially languages. This she showed in picking up some Portuguese and Spanish when left on shore for only a short time at Rio de Janeiro and Montevideo, and in her knowledge of English. York Minster was very jealous of any attention paid to her, for it was clear he determined to marry her as soon as they were settled on shore. Although all three could both speak and understand a good deal of English, it was singularly difficult to obtain much information from them concerning the habits of their countrymen. This was partly owing to their apparent difficulty in understanding the simplest alternative. Every one accustomed to very young children knows how seldom one can get an answer even to so simple a question as whether a thing is black or white. The idea of black or white seems alternately to fill their minds. So it was with these Fuegians and hence it was generally impossible to find out, by cross-questioning, whether one had rightly understood anything which they had asserted. Their sight was remarkably acute. It is well known that sailors, from long practice, can make out a distant object much better than a landsman, but both York and Jemmy were much superior to any sailor on board. Several times they have declared what some distant object has been, and though doubted by every one, they have proved right when it has been examined through a telescope. They were quite conscious of this power, and Jemmy, when he had any little quarrel with the officer on watch, would say, Me see ship, me no tell. It was interesting to watch the conduct of the savages when we landed towards Jemmy Button. They immediately perceived the difference between him and ourselves, and held much conversation one with another on the subject. The old man addressed a long harangue to Jemmy, which it seems was to invite him to stay with them, but Jemmy understood very little of their language, and was, moreover, thoroughly ashamed of his countrymen. When York Minster afterwards came on shore, they noticed him in the same way, and told him he ought to shave, yet he had not twenty dwarf hairs on his face, whilst we all wore our untrimmed beards. They examined the color of his skin, and compared it with ours. One of our arms being bared, they expressed the liveliest surprise and admiration at its whiteness, just in the same way in which I have seen the orangutan do at the zoological gardens. 
We thought that they mistook two or three of the officers, who were rather shorter and fairer, though adorned with large beards, for the ladies of our party. The tallest among the Fuegians was evidently much pleased at his height being noticed. When placed back to back with the tallest of the boat's crew, he tried his best to edge on higher ground and to stand on tiptoe. He opened his mouth to show his teeth and turned his face for a side view, and all this was done with such alacrity that I dare say he thought himself the handsomest man in Tierra del Fuego. After our first feeling of grave astonishment was over, nothing could be more ludicrous than the odd mixture of surprise and imitation which these savages every moment exhibited. The next day I attempted to penetrate some way into the country. Tierra del Fuego may be described as a mountainous land, partly submerged in the sea, so that deep inlets and bays occupy the place where valleys should exist. The mountain sides, except on the exposed western coast, are covered from the water's edge upward by one great forest. The trees reach to an elevation between 1,000 and 1,500 feet, and are succeeded by a band of peat with minute alpine plants, and this again is succeeded by the line of perpetual snow, which, according to Captain King, in the Strait of Magellan descends to between 3,000 and 4,000 feet. To find an acre of land level in any part of this country is most rare, I recollect only one little flat piece near Port Famine, and another of rather larger extent near Gori Road. In both places, and everywhere else, the surface is covered by a thick bed of swampy peat. Even within the forest, the ground is concealed by a mass of slowly putrefying vegetable matter, which, from being soaked with water, yields to the foot. Finding it nearly hopeless to push my way through the wood, I follow the course of a mountain torrent. At first, from the waterfalls and number of dead trees, I could hardly crawl along, but the bed of the stream soon became a little more open, from the floods having swept the sides. I continued slowly to advance for an hour along the broken and rocky banks, and was amply repaid by the grandeur of the scene. The gloomy depth of the ravine wall accorded with the universal signs of violence. On every side were lying irregular masses of rock and torn-up trees, other trees, though still erect, were decayed to the heart and ready to fall. The entangled mass of the thriving and the fallen reminded me of the forests within the tropics. Yet there was a difference, for in these still solitudes, death, instead of life, seemed the predominant spirit. I followed the watercourse till I came to a spot where a great slip had cleared a straight space down the mountainside. By this road I ascended to a considerable elevation, and obtained a good view of the surrounding woods. The trees all belonged to one kind, the Fagus betuloides, for the number of other species of Fagus and of the winter's bark is quite inconsiderable. This beech keeps its leaves throughout the year, but its foliage is of a peculiar brownish-green color, with a tinge of yellow. As the whole landscape is thus colored, it has a somber, dull appearance nor is it often enlivened by the rays of the sun. December 20th One side of the harbor is formed by a hill about 1,500 feet high, which Captain Fitzroy has called after Sir J. Banks, in commemoration of his disastrous excursion, which proved fatal to two men of his party, and nearly so to Dr. Solander. The snowstorm, which was the cause of their misfortune, happened in the middle of January, corresponding to our July, and in the latitude of Durham. I was anxious to reach the summit of this mountain to collect alpine plants, for flowers of any kind in the lower parts are few in number. 
We followed the same water course as on the previous day, till it dwindled away, and we were then compelled to crawl blindly among the trees. These, from the effects of the elevation and of the impetuous winds, were low, thick, and crooked. At length we reached that which from a distance appeared like a carpet of fine green turf, but which, to our vexation, turned out to be a compact mass of little beech trees about four or five feet high. They were as thick together as box in the border of a garden, and we were obliged to struggle over the flat but treacherous surface. After a little more trouble we gained the peat and then the bare slate rock. A ridge connected this hill with another, distant some miles, and more lofty, so that patches of snow were lying on it. As the day was not far advanced, I determined to walk there and collect plants along the road. It would have been very hard work had it not been for a well-beaten and straight path made by the guanocos, for these animals, like sheep, always follow the same line. When we reached the hill, we found it the highest in the immediate neighborhood, and the waters flowed to the sea in opposite directions. We obtained a wide view over the surrounding country. To the north a swampy moorland extended, but to the south we had a view of savage magnificence, well becoming Tierra del Fuego. There was a degree of mysterious grandeur in mountain behind mountain, with the deep intervening valleys, all covered by one thick, dusky mass of forest. The atmosphere, likewise, in this climate, where gale succeeds gale, with rain, hail, and sleet, seems blacker than anywhere else. In the Strait of Magellan, looking due southward from Port Famine, the distant channels between the mountains appeared from their gloominess to lead beyond the confines of this world. December 21st. The Beagle got under way, and on the succeeding day, favored to an uncommon degree by a fine easterly breeze, we closed in with the Barnevelts, and running past Cape Deceit with its stony peaks, about three o'clock, doubled the weather-beaten Cape Horn. The evening was calm and bright, and we enjoyed a fine view of the surrounding isles. Cape Horn, however, demanded his tribute, and before night sent us a gale of wind directly in our teeth. We stood out to sea, and on the second day again made the land, when we saw on our weather bow this notorious promontory in its proper form, veiled in a mist, and its dim outline surrounded by a storm of wind and water. Great black clouds were rolling across the heavens, and squalls of rain, with hail, swept by us with such extreme violence that the captain determined to run into Wigwam Cove. This is a snug little harbor, not far from Cape Horn, and here, at Christmas Eve, we anchored in smooth water. The only thing which reminded us of the gale outside was every now and then a puff from the mountains which made the ship surge at her anchors. December 25th Close by the cove, a pointed hill called Cater's Peak rises to the height of 1,700 feet. The surrounding islands all consist of conical masses of greystone, associated sometimes with less regular hills of baked and altered clay slate. This part of Tierra del Fuego may be considered as the extremity of the submerged chain of mountains already alluded to. The cove takes its name of Wigwam from some of the Fuegian habitations, but every bay in the neighborhood might be so called with equal propriety. The inhabitants, living chiefly upon shellfish, are obliged constantly to change their place of residence, but they return at intervals to the same spots, as is evident from the piles of old shells, which must often amount to many tons in freight. These heaps can be distinguished at a long distance by the bright green color of certain plants which invariably grow on them. 
Among these may be enumerated the wild celery and scurvy grass, two very serviceable plants, the use of which has not been discovered by the natives. The Fuegian wingwam resembles, in size and dimensions, a haycock. It merely consists of a few broken branches stuck in the ground, and very imperfectly thatched on one side with a few tufts of grass and rushes. The whole cannot be the work of an hour, and it is only used for a few days. At Gorey Roads I saw a place where one of these naked men had slept, which absolutely offered no more cover than the form of a hare. The man was evidently living by himself, and York Minster said he was a very bad man, and that probably had stolen something. On the west coast, however, the wigwams are rather better, for they are covered with sealskins. We were detained here several days by the bad weather. The climate is certainly wretched. The summer solstice was now past, yet every day snow fell on the hills, and in the valleys there was rain, accompanied by sleet. The thermometer generally stood about 45 degrees, but in the night fell to 38 or 40 degrees. From the damp and boisterous state of the atmosphere, not cheered by a gleam of sunshine, one fancied the climate even worse than it really was. While going one day on shore near Wollaston Island, we pulled alongside a canoe with six Fuegians. These were the most abject and miserable creatures I had anywhere beheld. On the east coast the natives, as we have seen, have guanoco cloaks, and on the west they possess sealskins. Amongst these central tribes the men generally have an otter skin, or some small scrap about as large as a pocket handkerchief, which is barely sufficient to cover their backs as low down as their loins. It is laced across the breast with strings, and according as the wind blows, it is shifted from side to side. But these fuegians in the canoe were quite naked, and even one full-grown woman was absolutely so. It was raining heavily, and the fresh water, together with the spray, trickled down her body. In another harbor not far distant, a woman who was suckling a recently born child came one day alongside the vessel, and remained there out of mere curiosity, whilst the sleet fell and thawed on her naked bosom and on the skin of her naked baby. These poor wretches were stunted in their growth, their hideous faces bedaubed with white paint, their skins filthy and greasy, their hair entangled, their voices discordant, and their gestures violent. Viewing such men, one can hardly make oneself believe that they are fellow creatures, and inhabitants of the same world. It is a common subject of conjecture what pleasure in life some of the lower animals can enjoy, how much more reasonably the same question may be asked with respect to these barbarians. At night, five or six human beings, naked and scarcely protected from the wind and rain of this tempestuous climate, sleep on the wet ground, coiled up like animals. Whenever it is low water, winter or summer, night or day, they must rise to pick shellfish from the rocks, and the women either dive to collect sea eggs or sit patiently in their canoes, and with a baited hairline without any hook, jerk out little fish. If a seal is killed or the floating carcass of a putrid whale is discovered, it is a feast, and such miserable food is assisted by a few tasteless berries and fungi. They often suffer from famine. I heard Mr. Lowe, a sealing-master intimately acquainted with the natives of this country, give a curious account of the state of a party of one hundred and fifty natives on the west coast, who were very thin and in great distress. A succession of gales prevented the women from getting shellfish on the rocks, and they could not go out in their canoes to catch seal. A small party of these men one morning set out, and the other Indians explained to him that they were going a four days' journey for food. On their return, Lowe went to meet them, and he found them excessively tired, 
each man carrying a great square piece of putrid whale's blubber, with a hole in the middle through which they put their heads, like the gauchos do through their ponchos or cloaks. As soon as the blubber was brought into a wigwam, an old man cut off thin slices, and muttering over them, broiled them for a minute, and then distributed them to the famished party, who during this time preserved a profound silence. Mr. Lowe believes that whenever a whale is cast on shore, the natives bury large pieces of it in the sand, as a resource in time of famine, and a native boy whom he had on board once found a stock thus buried. The different tribes when at war are cannibals. From the concurrent but quite independent evidence of the boy taken by Mr. Lowe, and of Jemmy Button, it is certainly true that when pressed in winter by hunger, they kill and devour their old women before they kill their dogs. The boy, being asked by Mr. Lowe why they did this, answered, "'Doggies catch otters, old women no.' This boy described the manner in which they are killed by being held over smoke and thus choked. He imitated their screams as a joke, and described the parts of their bodies which are considered best to eat. Horrid as such a death by the hands of their friends and relatives must be, the fears of the old women, when hunger begins to press, are more painful to think of. We are told that they often run away into the mountains, but that they are pursued by the men and brought back to the slaughterhouse at their own firesides. Captain Fitzroy could never ascertain that the Fuegians have any distinct belief in a future life. They sometimes bury their dead in caves, and sometimes in the mountain forests. We do not know what ceremonies they perform. Jemmy Button would not eat land birds, because eat dead men. They are unwilling even to mention their dead friends. We have no reason to believe that they perform any sort of religious worship, though perhaps the muttering of the old man before he distributed the putrid blubber to his famished party may be of this nature. Each family or tribe has a wizard or conjuring doctor, whose office we could never clearly ascertain. Jemmy believed in dreams, though not, as I have said, in the devil. I do not think that our Fuegians were much more superstitious than some of the sailors, for an old quartermaster firmly believed that the successive heavy gales which we encountered off Cape Horn were caused by our having the Fuegians on board. The nearest approach to a religious feeling which I heard of was shown by York Minster, who, when Mr. Bino shot some very young ducklings as specimens, declared in the most solemn manner, "'Oh, Mr. Bino, much rain, snow, blow much!' was evidently a retributive punishment for wasting human food. In a wild and excited manner he also related that his brother, one day whilst returning to pick up some dead birds which he had left on the coast, observed some feathers blown by the wind. His brother said, York imitating his manner, "'What's that?' and crawling onwards he peeped over the cliff and saw wild man picking his birds. He crawled a little nearer and then hurled down a great stone and killed him. York declared for a long time afterwards storms raged, and much rain and snow fell. As far as we could make out, he seemed to consider the elements themselves as the avenging agents. It is evident in this case how naturally, in a race a little more advanced in culture, the elements would become personified. What the bad wild men were has always appeared to me most mysterious. From what York said, when we found the place like the form of a hare where a single man had slept the night before, I should have thought that they were thieves who had been driven from their tribes. But other obscure speeches made me doubt this. I have sometimes imagined that the most probable explanation was that they were insane. The different tribes have no government or chief, yet each is surrounded by other hostile tribes, speaking different dialects, and separated from each other only by a deserted border or neutral territory. The cause of their warfare appears to be the means of subsistence. 
Their country is a broken mass of wild rocks, lofty hills, and useless forests, and these are viewed through mists and endless storms. The habitable land is reduced to the stones on the beach. In search of food, they are compelled unceasingly to wander from spot to spot, and so steep is the coast that they can only move about in their wretched canoes. They cannot know the feeling of having a home, and still less that of domestic affection, for the husband is to the wife a brutal master to a laborious slave. Was a more horrid deed ever perpetrated than that witnessed on the west coast by Byron, who saw a wretched mother pick up her bleeding, dying infant boy, whom her husband had mercilessly dashed on the stones for dropping a basket of sea-eggs? How little can the higher powers of the mind be brought into play! What is there for imagination to picture, for reason to compare, or judgment to decide upon? To knock a limpet from the rock does not require even cunning, that lowest power of the mind." Their skill in some respects may be compared to the instinct of animals, for it is not improved by experience. The canoe, their most ingenious work, poor as it is, has remained the same, as we know from Drake, for the last two hundred and fifty years. Whilst beholding these savages, one asks, Whence have they come? What could have tempted, and what change compelled a tribe of men to leave the fine regions of the north, to travel down the cordillera or backbone of America, to invent and build canoes which are not used by the tribes of Chile, Peru, and Brazil, and then to enter on one of the most inhospitable countries within the limits of the globe. Although such reflections must at first seize on the mind, yet we may feel sure that they are partly erroneous. There is no reason to believe that the Fuegians decrease in number. Therefore, we must suppose that they enjoy a sufficient share of happiness, of whatever kind it may be to render life worth having. Nature, by making habit omnipotent, and its effects hereditary, has fitted the Fuegian to the climate and the productions of his miserable country.